This is the podcast of Theophilus Church. For more information, visit our website at theophiluschurch.com. Good evening, Theophilus. Welcome to church. Yay. Yay. Hey, tonight, after we finish our worship and hear this amazing word from Desiree this evening, um, I invite you to a potluck downstairs that I am positive is going to make any Super Bowl party potluck really, really jealous. So, um, actually, I don't, I'm not positive about that. But... Um, Join us for a potluck afterwards as we continue our time together in worship. It's wonderful to see everyone here tonight. Um, just a few announcements of some things that are coming up. Uh, we've been talking about the potential of this new uh, church facility. We're going to be doing a walkthrough uh, this coming Saturday. So those of you who showed up uh, yesterday and were surprised that it was not yesterday, well, you can drive back out there tomorrow. Um So how this is going to work is we're going to do a walkthrough. It starts at 10 a.m. If you are not receiving the church email newsletter, now is the time to let myself or Jonathan Matthews, is he in here? He's not. Oh, he's in the very back. Let him know um, that you're not receiving it so we can get your email address and get you on the list. The address is on those emails, um, so you'll know where to go through that. But that's coming up this Saturday at 10 a.m. Please plan on being there. And then we will open up the poll to gain uh, community feedback right after that walkthrough on Saturday, and that will be open all week, okay? Um, so that's that. The CSA last week, we announced that we are have officially launched uh, the CSA, and we are in the sign-up period for those uh, who would like to participate in that. If you don't know what it is, it's your first time hearing about it, come talk to me afterwards. I'd love to talk your ear off about it. It's really exciting stuff. Um, if you have not signed up for it, now is the time to do it. Theophiluschurch.com forward slash CSA uh, or garden, sorry, forward slash garden. And on there, there will be a little sign up sheet uh, for you to get plugged in there. The last day to sign up is going to be the 12th. So we want to make sure that we do that uh, quickly. And then next week, we will be announcing a new uh, small group that will be meeting over the source, the uh, course of uh, six weeks. So um, be here next week and we will announce that. So tonight, we have the opportunity to hear from Desiree Ritz. And um, I know, right? I've been reflecting this past week. And honestly, I just want to share, like, I'm pretty overwhelmed with a sense of gratitude. And I say this, I've said this, like, several times. uh, But honestly, like, in the last two months as a community, we have had the opportunity to learn from Jackie and Jonathan and Lahela and Andy and Desiree. And it's like, and, and look around. I mean, we're not this like massive community, but the wealth of wisdom and perspective and just beautiful people and hearts that we get to share life and community with, it just, it, it overwhelms me at times. So I'm so unbelievably grateful for the people in this community Desiree has blessed me tremendously over the last however many years you have been a part of this community. She came here 
to Portland as a church planner and a pastor, and she exudes that with all of her being. She has been a deacon in this community, deacon of Garden Life, and has been one of the think tanks, her and Tom, about the CSA stuff and the future of church in terms of earth stewardship, um, and just been an incredible part of our community. And tonight, we get to hear from her again, so welcome Desiree, she comes to the pulpit. Cool, I scooted back, not for any reason other than to be close to my tea. I got a tiny tickle in my throat last night at 1 a.m. And I was like, no. Um, remember when it was supposed to snow today? <laughs> Did anyone know it was supposed to snow today? My family just had a picnic outside for lunch in the sunshine. It's very weird. <laughs> um, welcome to church, guys. I'm happy to be here. Um, so as Karen so beautifully, uh, every time Karen reads the scripture, I'm like, Jesus is here. I love when she reads. Um, So she read the Beatitudes tonight, um, and that's what we're going to be going through. And soon after Christ's divinity was revealed at his baptism, he preaches the Sermon on the Mount, which is where we find these Beatitudes, these these blessings. And in fact, Jesus, um, it's his like first publicly recorded sermon, if you will, um, after he was recognized as the Son of God. So a couple weeks ago, we heard the story about his baptism. Um, that'll just remind us a bit. It said in Matthew 3.16, as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, alighting on him. And a voice of the heaven said, this is my son who I love. With him, I am well pleased. And right after that, Jesus, in good fashion, <laughs> escapes into the desert for 40 days. Um, I love it. He, like, gets proclaimed the Son of God. And he's like, peace out, everybody. Like, just give me a moment. Um, so he goes to the desert. He gets tested. Um, and then he comes back, and he starts preaching all throughout Galilee. And he's healing the sick, um, and he's preaching, and he starts gathering his first disciples. Um, people are really interested in physically what he's doing and then also what he's saying. And so people are saying things like, you know, where are you you sleeping tonight? Can I follow you? Can I dwell with you? Can I dwell with wisdom? And people are just about ready to leave all all of themselves and their lives behind to go follow him. Um, So again, in um, good fashion like Jesus, he climbs a mountain. um, And then his fellow climbers come with him. And this is where he preaches his first recorded sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. Um, I think it's really important for us to view this sermon through the lens of royalty. Um, So the Beatitudes is found in Matthew. There's another um, kind of parallel sermon called the Sermon on the Plain, which I actually spoke about last year around the same time. And when I was prepping for this, I was like, have I done this sermon before? Um, I haven't. It was a very different sermon. But in Luke, um, uh, the Sermon on the Plain is recorded, and it's really similar, and I'll I'll dissect that um, a little bit later, but um, when, when Matthew opens up his book, he highlights the genealogy of Jesus, and it's really important that Jesus is coming from the line of David, um, and the Sermon on the Mount, it's filled with tons of like kingdom language, and this language, for us, we're not very accustomed to. We don't live in a kingdom. Um, we watch them on TV, <laughs> like, um, but it's just not in our vernacular. We live in a democracy. We don't have a king. Um, but the term kingdom, it occurs eight times 
in this discourse through the Sermon on the Mount. Um, excuse me, just within the Beatitudes. Um, and so then you could, like one commentary said that you could thus think of the Sermon on the Mount as the speech of the king, which really gave me pause when I read that. Because um, again, I think of TV. I think of like any show I've ever watched um, where the king gets up and he speaks and he has everyone's attention because he's about ready to declare war or declare peace or do something really tremendous in his kingdom. And so he has all the ears and all the eyes. And this is what's happening. He's climbed this mountain. People are following him and coming after him. And then the king speaks. Um, yeah, because he's just been revealed at the Son of God at baptism, right? So it's this very curious thing. Um, the Israelites, they have been waiting They've been waiting for this king. They've been waiting for him. Um, and so he has this crowd, and they're just wondering, what's he, what is he going to say? Um, and we'll unpack this a little bit more, this idea of like the lens of royalty um, later on. But um, it's just re- really important, I think, for us to remember this theme of kingship as we, um, as we move through this. And we'll later visit like one of the, a few of the really important roles of a king. Um, but I just want to like recognize for a moment, um, some of you might have read this or listened to this when Karen was reading and found yourself rolling your eyes or um, feeling a little um, like cynicism or, or sarcasm. And if you didn't, awesome, I did when I first read this. Because um, you read things like, blessed are the poor. You're like, hmm? Are they though? Like, yeah, awesome, Jesus. Look around at all the really blessed poor people. Blessed are those who mourn. Well, I've lost people before, and I've been in deep depression. And I didn't feel blessed when I was mourning. And so Jesus is saying these things, and you're like, oh, yeah, that's, that's an interesting thought. Maybe that's an interesting promise, and this is a promise. Um, but it's really difficult, I think, to read this, um, there's actually this Simon and Garfunkel song called Blessed. And I almost played it tonight and did a whole thing about like dissecting the song, and then I decided not to. Um, but if you have time, listen to it this week. It's really interesting because it's, um, it has lines where it'll, it'll repeat things like, blessed are the poor, and then, and then it'll say things like, but God, why have you forsaken me? And it, and you, it like, highlights this tension that we live in, right? We, we live in the kingdom being here, but not yet, right? It's, we, we're living on this spectrum, and Jesus tells us the kingdom has come. That's something he's proclaimed all throughout the Gospels, right? The Jesus, that the kingdom has come. The kingdom is coming, and it will be coming soon, but it's a little bit delayed. Like, it's not fully here yet. It's not fully realized. Um, And Jesus is talking about what the kingdom of heaven will look like through his reign as king. And that king will fulfill all the laws and all the prophets. That's why he says, like, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. Um, And again, we'll dissect that a little bit more because that's like when we get to the kind of the the meat of the king talk. Um, 
But the king that the Israelites have been praying for and waiting for for generations is here. And he's on a mountain and he's doing his speech. Um, And as many of you know, he shows up and he says things and they're like, oh, I want you to just overthrow Rome. I want you to actually like lift us up. We are marginalized people. And and he just, Jesus just says things all the time that are just frankly impossible. Like, forgive your enemy. Or if you get slapped on your face, just turn the other cheek. That's not, like, that's not our human reaction um, at all. Um, And yet Jesus shows up and he becomes this king that has the capacity to live out this life in a way that he's actually calling us to live, which is what the king was supposed to do. The king was supposed to show up and embody the law in a way that others didn't. And I'm excited to get into the king stuff, but we're going to dissect a few of these terms first. Um, a few of these um, terms in the Beatitudes are pretty easy for us to understand, like blessed are the peacemakers, um, blessed are the pure in heart. Um, but there's a couple of them I want to just define a bit. Um, it opens up and it says, blessed are the poor in spirit. So blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And when Luke does this, he just says, blessed are the poor. Um, and this term, this poor in spirit term, it's a word for beggar. So then it resonates with Luke, like blessed are the poor. Um, a beggar is someone who has nothing and knows it. They're the person waiting for you on the on-ramp to I-5 with a cardboard sign. They have nothing, and they know it. They're not living vicariously through credit cards and like being housebroke. Like they don't have anything, and they're just standing there empty-handed. And the problem with this idea of Jesus saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, is we also want the kingdom of heaven, but a lot of us think we have something to offer. In fact, we've been working really, really hard our whole life to get educated and to become more patient and more kind, and we've been working really, really hard to have something. And Jesus isn't saying, like, blessed are those who are self-actualized. Blessed are those who are um, self-dependent. He's saying, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Maybe we have something to offer. Maybe we have a super killer personality, or we have these talents or leadership skills. Maybe we've worked on spiritual um, like quests, like humbleness and patience and the fruit of the Spirit and these things that are so difficult. But Jesus isn't calling us to self-sufficiency. He's not calling us to like live the American dream with two and a half kids and a well-respected paying job. Although Jesus doesn't condone these things, and if you have them, use them well and use them for the kingdom. But he's saying we can't present these things to Christ as tokens to the kingdom. What would happen to us if the kingdom didn't come? Some of us think we would actually be okay. But the beggar knows they'd be screwed if the kingdom didn't come. They need it. 
They absolutely need it. They are standing there empty-handed, and they are the poor in spirit. The entrance into the kingdom of heaven, it's marked with things like, I have nothing, and I can't get in by myself. Or, I can't forgive on my own. Or, I don't know how to pray. That's the poor in spirit. It's saying things like, I need your blessing. I need your grace. I need your forgiveness. Another term that he um, that Christ speaks is blessed are the meek. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And this promise, this blessing, is the one that gets me um, just like I just start buzzing. Because um, as Cam mentioned, like earth stewardship is at pretty much the core of like how I orient myself. And so thinking about inheriting the earth and it being a good earth and actually providing good food because the soil is still yummy, like that, that's the earth I want. Um, this term, um, meekness, it means tender, free from pride. And one commentary talked about meekness as being gentleness in strength. And I had a professor in college that often brought up the fact that meekness is not weakness. It's controlled strength. True strength actually has the capacity to be gentle. Have you ever had to hold yourself back from saying that thing to that person? Maybe a partner in life, a friend, a parent, a coworker? and you actually hold yourself back, that's meekness. That's controlling yourself. That's controlled strength. For me, I have to physically hold myself back. When I get angry at my two-year-old because he's being a sweet little nut job, my hand just does this. And I've never done this in my whole life to any child. I've worked in childcare for like a decade and a half, and I just go to flick them. And I'm learning, like, that's me being meek is, I, I have to tell him sometimes, Wesley, mama wants to flick you, but I'm going to put my hand down. And he's been flicked before, and so he looks at me and goes, mama, don't flick me. I go, I won't. I'm not going to. I will not physically hurt you. I will give you time and space. Lord, help me. Like, you're just, that is meekness. That's controlling yourself, and it's super hard. I think all of us have these moments, like some of you probably had someone come to mind in your life that really tests you, that really pushes your buttons. When you wait to become level-headed after some type of explosive thing happens, and then you come back to the person later and you're level-headed, and you can have a real conversation about something that's really deep and hard, that's meekness. That's true strength. That's controlled strength. And Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. The other thing to define is just the term beatitudes. It means the blessings. It's Greek for the blessings. And in Matthew's first line, to go back to the poor in spirit, it's, it's helpful to kind of dissect how like how this sentence is formatted. And this was really helpful. This was a turning point to my cynicism when I was going through this. Um, so it says, blessed are the poor in spirit, 
So blessed are those who have nothing and know it. Blessed are those who are humble. Blessed are those who come empty-handed, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So the blessed, excuse me, the, yeah, the blessed persons are identified as the poor in spirit. And they're blessed because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They're not blessed because they're poor. Jesus is just defining them, saying, you're poor, and guess what? You get the kingdom of heaven. I was talking to Tom about this a couple weeks ago when I was prepping, and he said, that reminds me, it's, we're not loved by God because we're good. We have the freedom to be good because of God's love. I'm going to say that again because this guy's a gem. We're not loved by God because we're good. We have the freedom to be good because of God's love. We're not blessed because we're poor in spirit and coming to God empty-handed and being humble, but we're blessed because of the kingdom of heaven. And guess what? We've already inherited the kingdom of heaven. It's already been promised to us. We're already sons and daughters of the king. This isn't something we have to work for. We just have to accept it. We have to just come to him with empty hands and accept his blessing. Blessedness shouldn't be seen as reward for religious accomplishments either. So if you've been working really hard on being patient and humble and kind and generous, he's not blessing you with the kingdom because of all of your efforts. He's saying, hey, I'm going to live in relationship with you and I'm going to bless you in the middle of all of your sin and in the middle of all of your shortcoming. He's not congratulating them on moral or spiritual achievements. The Beatitudes, they underscore the fact that sinners stand within a loving and forgiving relationship with their God, and it's made possible through Christ's atonement. Another facet to unpack regarding blessing is that we were people created in blessing. We were created in Genesis 1. We weren't created in Genesis 3. Augustine did awesome work with kind of unpacking what original sin looked like. But there was an original blessing before the original sin. Right, church? Like, I see you guys like, uh-huh. Like, you can feel that, right? Like, we were created in blessing. We didn't start in sin. We were formed out of blessing. And there's this, there's this goodness, this life, vitality, health, this balance. It's sewn into the very fabric of the universe. That's how God created the earth. He created it within balance. He created it with this goodness. And then the original sin happened. And Christ decided to join us to try and restore balance that was lost in sin. It was lost when sin entered into creation. And the Beatitudes, they showcase Christ's ability and his desire for balance, his desire for, for equality, his desire for equity. I love the term equity because um, it means even-handedness, neutrality, and balance. And you, you think about these... Um, these blessings, these beatitudes, and they're really like, they feel really wonky. So 
like if you can see my hands for a second here, like think of the poor, like we would just kind of put the poor down here and blessed people would be up here. So like blessed are the poor for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and speak falsely of you and say all kinds of evil about you because your reward is in heaven. Christ constantly is raising up the meek and he's humbling the proud. The king of kings, the ruler of heaven and earth, came down as a helpless infant. Helpless infant. He couldn't even lift his neck up. He couldn't wipe his own vomit off of his mouth. That's our God. That's how he showed up on this earth. He levels the playing fields. He finds balance. He finds that equity, that even-handedness. In Christ's kingdom, there are no privileged members. In fact, when the Pharisees and other you know, religious elite thought that they were privileged and they tried to use that privilege, they got in huge trouble with Jesus. He's like, no. Like, he will not stand for that. Like, you, you don't get privilege in the kingdom of God. You're blessed and you're blessed. And it's the same amount of blessedness, friend. That's God's grace. In creation, God displays the sense of balance everywhere. This morning, I went on a, on a walk with my two-year-old, and there's a really big um, pond. It's a huge puddle, and it's just full of mud and dirt. And we were there for like a half an hour because it's water, right? So it's just amazing. And he's, we're throwing pebbles from the street into the pond, and we're watching, watching these ripples. And I'm just as or more amazed as he was, because I was really trying to figure out there were some weird things happening with these splashing effects. I'm like expecting one ripple to happen, but the rock goes in, and then it splashed, and then all the water droplets landed and created more ripples, because it was so shallow. And I think it was early, and it took me forever to figure this out. But I was like, why are there 17 rippling effects happening? And finally I told myself, I was like, I figured it out! It's because it's super shallow. Ugh. This is before I had tea, I think. But this like idea of, um, of pattern, it's everywhere in nature. When you throw a pebble into a pond, it doesn't create chaos. It doesn't create disorder. It creates a pattern. It starts in the center and it moves outward in the same amount. It's gorgeous. You should do it if you haven't done it recently. Did you know that birds actually molt the same flight feathers on each wing so they can remain perfectly balanced and maintain their agility even in the middle of a molting season? I love that. Sometimes I feel like I'm molting. And I feel like, man, I would love to somehow figure out how to remain balanced in the middle of knowing you're losing some stuff and it hurts. Math. Some of you just went like, because you're excited about the word math, and other of you, like me, like felt your heart clench because you cried all throughout high school and college trying to pass math classes. Um, listen to this. So the word, the root word of math is mathema, and it signifies learning in general. 
And it's the root word of an Old English, Matthian, meaning to awaken. The older understanding of math described a way to awaken to and to be conscious of the beauty and the order that's unfolding all around us. This is where patterns and symmetry and geometry, all of this comes from, to awaken. Plato would even say that patterns and numbers bring self-awareness through the awareness of the original language of the universe. This sense of balance, again, it's interwoven in the very fabric of the universe. That's how God created us. That's how he created creation. God is a, is a, is a God of order. He's not a God of chaos. He's a God of symmetry. He's a God of equality. And you can see this in the pattern of a snail shell or the waves of the ocean, a tree branch. You can also see in how Christ interacts with and how he taught humanity. Soon after Christ's divinity was revealed at his baptism, he goes and he preaches the Sermon on the Mount, and the first thing he does is he starts declaring, all things are going to be made new. All will find balance again. Those who are mourning will find comfort. And those who are insulted and abused, they'll have treasures waiting for them in heaven. The kingdom of God is about symmetry and balance and order. It's about life. It's about real life, as it turns out, that follows death. That's how powerful this life is. And this pattern of life after death, it it shows up in just the created seasons. After a couple seasons of life and vitality and growth in the spring and the summer months, things start to die back. Autumn comes, it brings the shift. You harvest the last of your summer crops and then winter's here. And the whole earth sleeps. And humans sleep, right? We all like sleep a lot more during the winter. It dies back just so it can focus on root growth so it can be strong and more vibrant again in the spring. That's resurrection. That's life after death. So back to this idea of Jesus as king. As the king in this Hellenistic and Old Testament kingship, which is what the audience members knew about that were listening to Jesus' speech, um, the king was called to embody the law. One of the historical commentaries explains it like this. Kings in ancient times were to give the law and embody the law internally and produce good legislation that transforms the people and leads them into obedience into the law. So evidence exists both in ancient Near Eastern culture and in biblical text that the king was meant to be a living embodiment of the law and to instruct it both through teaching and through example. What if everyone in government was like this? They lived this pure and beautiful law so vibrantly that it called all of their subjects to follow them. That's what God, that's what, this is like, as the king goes, the nation goes. Jesus is the divinic king. And he came to be the living law. You can actually look at Jesus to see how to fulfill the law, how to live this life. And the reality is, is in the role of kingships, the king is not above the law. He knows and he loves and he embodies the law. And he follows it closer than anyone else does. 
He brings it to life. He animates the law. One of the roles of the, of the king was to actually, like their role was to care for the poor. Their role was to enforce this gleaning concept that the poor could come and get anything extra from the fields. They were the ones that were supposed to enforce and follow the Sabbath. So once a week, the entire earth could rest, including the king's servants, especially the poor, could rest. That was the king's role. And Jesus shows up, and he follows it, and he lives it out. And so Jesus is using this kingship language, so they understood it. Like, they knew what the role of the king was. So when he says things like, I didn't come to abolish the law, I came to fulfill it, they knew exactly what he was talking about. They knew the role of the king. So what is this law that Jesus is handing us? How is he also embodying it and then showing us how to live? Be poor in spirit. Be meek. Hunger and thirst for righteousness. I think of Cameron, like, I want to dwell with wisdom. If you don't know what I'm talking about, go listen to a couple weeks ago. His sermon was epic. Be merciful. Be pure in heart. Be a peacemaker. Because the kingdom of God is coming. And King Jesus will rule over heaven and earth. That's our promise. God will restore. He will bring balance. A new thing is coming. I want to take a moment and think with you guys. Close your eyes if it helps. Where do you see the kingdom already here? Where is their health and vitality? Where is their balance? Hold that, that thought and that notion in one hand. Now think, where do you still see imbalance? Where is there still inequity? And hold that thing in the other hand. How can you, how can we as a community, be a part of bringing that new thing, that thing that is already restored and balanced into the areas that are imbalanced? How can you bring justice into inequity? Or better yet, come before God and humbly ask, where are you already working? God, where are you already restoring brokenness and how can I partner with you? There's this um, excerpt I'm going to read from a book. Um, it's, a, it's a quote that I've like had in the back of my head for probably, geez, about 15 years now. And it's honestly like helped shape a lot of my decisions, like the really big ones in life. It says, to believe in God is to believe in the salvation of the world. The paradox of our time is that those who believe in God don't believe in the salvation of the world. Those who believe in the future of the world don't believe in God. Christians believe in the end of the world. They expect the final catastrophe, the punishment of others. Atheists, in their turn, they've invented doctrines of salvation. They try and get meaning out of life and work and the future of humankind. 
but then they refuse to believe in God because Christians believe in him and they take no interest in the world. All ignore the true God, he who has so loved the world. But which is the more culpable ignorance? To love God is to love the world. To love God passionately is to love the world passionately. To hope in God is to hope for the salvation of the world. I often say this to myself, that in our religion, God must feel very alone. For is there anyone beside God who actually believes in the salvation of the world? God seeks among us sons and daughters who resemble him enough, who love the world enough, that he could send them out to the world and save it. God seeks among us sons and daughters who resemble him enough, who love the world enough, that he could send them into the world to save it. Man, to resemble God enough. We already resemble God. We were made in his image. Remember, we were created in the Genesis 1 narrative. We were created within blessing. Maybe it's more accurately said that we all have the capacity to resemble him. The question you have to ask yourself is, what self are you operating in? Are you operating in Genesis 1 and wholeness? Are you operating in Genesis 3 and brokenness? Each of these beatitudes, they have to do with dying to yourself. You're dying to your false self. We could unpack what the false self means for like eight weeks, and it would be incredible. But in order to operate in your true self, you're reflecting God's image. Our true self is what Jesus embodied and he taught through these Beatitudes. It's what he taught through the fruit of the Spirit. It's what he taught all throughout the gospel. That's what the image of God is. Poor in spirit, meek, those who hunger, those who thirst for righteousness, those who want to dwell with wisdom those who are merciful and pure in heart, the peacemakers. I'm going to read the passage one more time, kind of as a closing, but from a different version. The first version we read um, was from the NIV. A lot of us know it that way. Um, But we're going to read it now through the message. It's very modern compared to the NIV, um, and it helps um, for me to kind of remove the cynicism um, and, and realize, okay, Instead of the cynicism of like, okay, God, where is my blessing? I'm poor. I'm mourning and I don't feel it. Or look around at all these people that are still not blessed. It reminds us of how we are actually blessed today. And while it's true that we're still living in the tension that the kingdom of God is here but not fully here yet, it highlights the fact that blessing is just waiting for us. And it reminds us how Jesus shows up in the here and now. And it helps us lean more into how to reflect God's image. So this is how the message says it. When Jesus saw his ministry drawing huge crowds, he climbed a hillside. Those who apprenticed to him, the committed, they climbed with him. Arriving in a quiet place, he sat down and he taught his climbing companions. This is what he said. You're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there's more of me. You're blessed when you feel that you've lost the thing that's most dear to you. 
Only then can you embrace the thing that's actually most dear. You're blessed when you're content with just who you are. No more, no less. That's the moment you find yourselves proud owners of everything that can't be bought. You're blessed when you've worked up a good appetite for God. He's the food and drink and the best meal you'll ever eat. You're blessed when you care. At the moment of being careful, you find yourself cared for. You're blessed when you get your inside world, your mind and your heart, put right. Then you can see God in the outside world. You're blessed when you can show people how to cooperate instead of how to compete and fight. That's when you discover who you really are and your place in God's family. You're blessed when you're committed to God, when your commitment to God provokes persecution. The persecution drives you even deeper into God's kingdom. Not only that, but count yourselves blessed every time someone puts you down or throws you out or speaks lies about you to discredit me. What it means is that the truth is too close for comfort and they are uncomfortable. You can be glad when it happens. Give it a cheer even. For even though they don't like it, I do. And all of heaven applauds and know that you're in good company because my prophets and witnesses have always gotten into this kind of trouble. That's the kingdom of God. This is the way to reflect God's image, to find balance, to find equality. This is how we bring balance back to a disordered world, to disordered families, to disordered communities. We were created in blessing. And according to this, even more blessing is coming. So church, let's be sons and daughters who resemble him enough, who love the world enough that he could send us out to save it. Amen? Amen. You've been listening to the podcast of Theophilus Church. We hope you've been inspired and challenged by what you've heard. For more information, visit our website at theophiluschurch.com.